This episode discusses two important things any entrepreneur should know. First, how to use sponsorships to grow your brand and sales. Second, and much more important, is how to lead. Santini is an Italian family-run premium cycling apparel company doing north of $30 million in annual sales. Started more than 60 years ago by her father, Monica Santini now runs the company with her younger sister heading the marketing department. Together, they've grown through strategic sponsorship alliances and by cultivating their retail network. In this episode, we discuss how they made those deals work for them, then transition into some of the challenges and benefits of being a female leader. Here's the important part. Her advice will help any leader foster a world-class work environment that attracts and retains the best employees. Please welcome Monica Santini. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Monica, thank you so much for being on the show. I've interviewed two couples in the past who run their companies as a team, but I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I'm almost 60 episodes in and you're the first solo female interview I've done for the Build Cycle. So later on, I want to talk about what it's like for you being a woman leading a a really big company and also working with your father and sister in a family business. But first, let's talk about Santini as a brand. In my mind, clothing, and especially premium cycling clothing, seems like a really tough sell when you have brands like, at least in the U.S., Performance Bike, making really nice stuff for pretty low prices. So how do you differentiate your products and brand to command a premium price? Well, first of all, thank you for having me as a first. I'm happy, (laughs) and I hope to be a first of many uh, women in in your show. I hope so, too. Um, well, as you said, you mentioned already uh, a critical word, pricing uh, or low pricing. This is not exactly uh, our, our uh, goal. We, we want always to be uh, view and consider a premium brand. Uh, in fact, uh, the four words, the four pillars that we found to define us uh, are fit, performance, comfort, durability. Uh, these four words define uh, every single one of our products uh, that because we uh, we want actually quality to be really top notch all the time. So uh, definitely one of our strategies uh, to be a performance, a super performance brand, but also uh, to be so we don't want to fight for pricing. This is not a, a, absolutely not what we want. Right. Yeah. Make sure I got my question across clearly. I was wondering, how do you compete against the lower price stuff that to the average consumer might look of similar quality? You know, how do you continue to command a premium price? Well, surely it's a, it's a difficult uh, uh, battle all the time, but uh, because it's difficult to 
to really explain these, uh, or, or, or what's the difference in the product and that defines the price. But for sure, we're trying to do these with a lot of, uh, uh, of investment in uh, all our communication. Uh, we, we want to explain very well why our products are different, why the technology behind make them different. So uh, we put a lot of effort into that, in great imagery, uh, the, all the story that we can define uh, for a product. And then, of course, uh, we talk most of the time also about uh, the heritage of the brand. Uh, this is a company that is more than 50 years old. And uh, when we say that we know what we're doing is because we've been here for, for more than 50 years. And we, we saw during the all the lifetime of this company what are the real needs of a, of a cyclist. And uh, that's why we come out with the ideas that we have on our clothing. Yeah. And other than the imagery, and we'll talk about some of the teams and athletes you sponsor in a little bit. But other than imagery, how do you get that message across in a way that resonates? I mean, I think the inherent benefit of being an Italian clothing brand is that people think of Italian clothing, especially Italian cycling clothing, as already being a little bit better than the rest. But what else specifically do you do to help people understand why your stuff is better? Well, when we say that we are made in Italy, it's because we are made in Italy. Uh, so in many cases, a lot of brands uh, are using you know, Italian sounding or in their name, <laughs> or they use uh, the fact that uh, the Italian colors, the tricolore, to say or to, to invite people to think that they are Italian made, but in many cases they are not. Uh, in our case, uh, when we say made in Italy, it's not because we design in Italy, it's because we actually produce everything in Italy. Our production is uh, here. Uh, uh, we uh, control everything, every single phase of, of what we do. So from the designing, but also to the prototyping and also to the, the production in the end. Uh, and we do it in, in Italy, in Laglio, where I am right now. Uh, so uh, th this is one of the things that allow us uh, to say that uh, the quality is super important for us because we control the quality of every single garment, uh, because we control the way where we make it. We buy pr uh, fabrics uh, in Italy and we uh, cut, stitch, print them <laughs> in Italy. So we have a very uh, strict control of everything that we do. So. Uh, we sometimes they called us purists. Uh, we really thought about uh, moving production somewhere else for a long time. But then in the end, we always said that uh, this is uh, a very rooted company in, in Italy. Uh, we want to keep it this way. We are super happy with all the stuff that work with us. Uh, and uh, we understand that uh, if a product is good, it's also good because of the people that make it know exactly what they need to do. So we don't have to explain it to them because they've been doing it for many years. Yeah. So you guys introduced a, a new product recently called Impact Bib Shorts that uses the Dyneema fiber, which is a super, super tough fiber. And it basically makes the shorts indestructible. You know, for the non-cyclists listening, especially for road riders, when they wreck... They tend to rip right through the clothing and then they rip right through the skin and it's called road rash and it's painful and nasty and takes forever to heal. And it turns out that 
right after you introduced those, they really got put through the test in this year's Tour de France. So my question is, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how they got tested, because I kind of like to hear your story version of that. But then my question really is, like, when you have an advanced feature like that, does that really help move the needle in terms of sales? Like, are people excited when there's a new feature like that? Or is it a, a really tough story to tell and then you have to put a lot of marketing behind that to get people interested uh well no if the the idea and uh, uh the product that you come out with is really answering some of the needs uh it's not that difficult to uh to actually sell it to the pro to, to the to the public uh the marketing of course is always needed uh, the information is, uh, is needed because you need to uh, to inform the people uh, of what you have uh, thought of, but uh, you don't really need it that much if the idea is good. So in case, in this case, uh, the story behind Impact is, uh, is is actually a long one because uh, we launched it uh, last year, but we've been uh, trying to find the right solution for more than two years. Uh, and we actually started uh, with Lotto Jumbo when we were uh, we were sponsoring the team. Uh, they were actually asking for something that could uh, help the riders to protect themselves in case of falls. Uh, you know that as you explained, when they fall, uh, the lycra normally rips apart, um, and also uh, usually you have they they slide on on the pavement for meters and meters, uh, and then of course the kind of scratches uh, uh, or kind of sometimes they burn actually their their skin uh, for for that reason. So. We were trying to, so we, of course, uh, contacted Dyneema because they are super good in, uh, uh, in these kind of fibers, above, above all in uh, uh, products for uh, normally work products. Um, and, but the, the main difficulty that we found was that, of course, as you said, it's a strong fiber, but it was also very rigid, uh, very thick. Uh, so it took us a long time because we needed to find also a cooperation on uh, uh, with a with a textile producer that could help us to actually find the right stretch, uh, the right thickness, uh, so that when we put uh, we inserted the beep shorts uh, with this uh, this fabric new fabric, you really cannot tell the difference from the rest of of the of the beep shorts. So it's very comfortable. Uh, but at the same time, when you fall, uh, it will really, really cover your skin. That's cool. Yeah, I want to kind of reiterate two things you said, because I think they're something everybody needs to remember when they're trying to figure out a new product introduction. The, the first was, when you have a product that actually solves a problem, which this does, because road rash is a real problem with people, right? And that... Um, that makes it easier because it's something people want. But then the other thing is it's that's not enough, right? Then you have to go that extra step and actually tell people about it. And I think some people fall in that trap where they're like, oh, this is going to be great. This, is, this solves this problem. Everybody is going to love this. And they make it. And then they are either don't know how to market it or they're afraid to put real dollars behind marketing it. And you kind of need to do both. Because- you certainly have to. And what you explained is really a typical Italian thing. So Italian companies uh, are usually super proud of their products. Uh, and they normally think that uh, they can sell themselves because uh, it's such a good product. So everybody will realize that. 
And then we forget that. So the world is a crowded place and that everybody's trying to sell their own thing. And so if you don't uh, communicate it properly, then uh, you can have the best product in the world, but people will not realize that you do have it. So, yes, uh, you need to have now, I think, more than in the past, you need to have the right communication. But then uh, once you have the right communication and you have a good pr product, then uh, it's easier to sell. So yeah. you have you need to have both. Yeah. You guys sponsor and have sponsored some major events like the Vuelta a España, the Giro d'Italia, the Trek Segafredo team. Do those partnerships really help move the needle in terms of sales? Uh, I, in certain cases, more than others. Uh, in uh, uh, for sure, it can it helps, uh, uh, of course, in the creation of or or in uh, in the enhancement of the brand recognition. Uh, it's difficult to then say if you sell more because you sponsor uh, a certain event or team. Uh, but definitely, uh, without uh, that image, uh, it would be more difficult to sell. So it's difficult to really get a real quantity out of that. Uh, but it's very important. But besides the the, the pure sales, uh, for us, in uh, certain sponsorships, uh, have got a super big value because of uh, uh, the research uh, that we we are. Uh, helped in doing through a team for instance so as i when i said before about uh, the uh, the impact bib shorts uh, we started all this process because uh, uh, the team lotto jumbo asked us to look into that uh, because they had a real need and we had to find a solution for them and then in the end we gave actually that solution to team track segafredo uh, because the process was a long one, but it started with uh, uh, a need coming from pro riders. So they are the ones that are really doing uh, super stressful hours on the bikes. They are the ones that actually can tell you what's needed. Uh, and, and of course, from that, so you, you need to put a lot of uh, research uh, and development to, to put in place the right product. Yeah. Do you ever come into a situation where you develop a product for that type of rider, somebody who's not only way better than the average cyclist or average person, but also just using it so much more where their needs and expectations are different than what, you know, I might want for somebody who instead of riding 20 hours a week, I'm riding maybe, you know, five hours a week. Does, is it harder or like do you end up developing something that doesn't really work as well for the average person? Oof. Well, I used to think that the needs of the normal person and the, the pro riders were very different. But then uh, in the last few years, uh, we realized that even the more sophisticated products that we, we were researching for the pros uh, are really a good thing for the, the normal rider. Then of course uh, you also uh, also the no as you say the normal riders are very different. There's uh, like a, a Sunday rider like me that uh, go out only a few hours a day or a few kilometers a year. But then you have also the very focused ones, uh, and so in in these big differences uh, you can find a lot of products for everybody. 
for sure. Even the 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 super skin suits uh, that we developed for the team Australia, for instance, that we we thought nobody would want these because they are so sophisticated, they're so expensive in the way they're made. But we were absolutely wrong because a lot of uh, uh, super uh, keen riders actually wanted that type of product as well. Cool. Um, so for those sponsorships, and this is a topic I'm working on for a full episode at some point, but I think one thing a lot of people don't realize when they're like, oh, I'm going to sponsor this team, I'll get great exposure out of it, is it's one thing to sponsor the team, but then you have to do a lot of activation behind that. Uh, what do you guys do to actually make the most of all of those sponsorships? Well, before talking about the activation, I have to say that sponsoring a team is, uh, in terms of a technical partner like we are, is not only putting some money on a table and say, okay, this is the money we sponsor you. That's not it. Uh, the biggest part is actually creating the right products and uh, helping the riders with their needs. So it involves... Uh, uh, fitting sessions, uh, it involves uh, uh, the fact that you have to uh, do measurements for each single rider. Uh, that means that uh, in many cases, more than uh, an industrial production, you become like a tailor for every single rider. So that is a, a really big investment, of course, uh, if you want to do it right, of course. Um, and, uh, and of course, and that is part of, it's a part of the investment that is not uh, only the cash contribution or the product contribution is a lot of time, uh, and people involved uh, in this whole operation. Uh, so this first thing, besides that, of course, uh, you need uh, then to, uh, make once again, as, as when we were speaking about the product, also the sponsorship is exactly the same thing. You need to make people aware that you're doing the sponsorship. Uh, that's one of the reasons why, uh, for instance, we created in uh, for tra with Traxigafredo, for instance, uh, we have uh, these beautiful videos that we did. Uh, we had actually some also good uh, collaboration with the writers because uh, uh, in a couple of cases we we not only created but also we named some of the the, the our products with names of the writers and then uh, we we of course promoted that uh, so uh, you need really to do a lot of things also uh, you can use uh, for instance uh, uh, with with events uh, like uh, as i said we we have uh, we are promote we are a sponsor of the vuelta but also the uci world championships we use of course uh, those events to invite people over uh, to have hospitality with them, uh, to make them uh, experience uh, things that money can buy, basically. So you can buy everything today, but not the experience to be on a team car, to be there when a world champion uh, crosses the, the finish line and you can see there in, in five minutes. So you, you really need to make, uh, create new experiences uh, to to promote also these sponsorships. And what type of people are you inviting to these? Like buyers or just typical consumers? Both. Uh, we do that uh, uh, with uh, with buyers of our biggest customers or uh, the the customers that uh, uh, have helped the brand to be more visible. 
but also we create a lot of uh, of these uh, uh, we we give away products or also uh, experiences uh, to final customers as well let's talk sales the typical cycling retail channel and i'm speaking mainly from the u.s side because that's the market i know but the you know the typical channel of bike shops is kind of drying up here a little bit in that a lot of shop owners i know are hesitant to bring in a lot of stock for things like clothing which can be kind of hit or miss in terms of whether or not people will buy it off the rack and then, of course, more and more people are shopping online too. So, how are you guys dealing with that? Uh, yeah, it's the the channels, uh, the typical uh, distributing channels are changing a lot. Uh, it and and for sure, uh, the online is now uh, an inevitable uh, uh, thing that every brand needs to uh, to take into consideration. So the, the the let's say that uh, one in in certain countries uh, more than others uh, we we are trying to help uh, the typical brick and mortar uh, shop. So for instance, in Italy, um, we have um, we have teamed up with other uh, companies to create an academy for the shops for the bike shops to help them understand uh, how the market is changing, what is requested right now to be uh, still available and, and, and ready to, uh, to, to get a good customer, uh, to help them with on the marketing side. Uh, so, but also, not only that, also the uh, administra- administrative uh, needs so of course the, the the channels are very different from country to country in Italy, but in Europe in general, you have more uh, single-owned shops uh, like independent ones, less chain shops. So these single shops uh, are really in need of help because it's uh, it's difficult now to be super expert expert in everything. You cannot be an expert in. Uh, uh, building up a bike, but also being good at the social media platforms and also create a, a nice window and then manage your stock. So we are trying to help them in, in, this, in this way. Uh, in other cases, uh, we, we try to help them out with stock rota- rotation or we, with uh, creating a nice environment uh, uh, dedicated to the Santini brand in their shop. So depending on who we're talking to, we try to find different solutions. It's true that uh, we will see a lot. We've been seeing these, but we will see a lot of uh, uh, ch- changes uh, in, in the next few years. Yeah. So when you say stock rotation, do you mean if some product, you know, like let's say it's a spring collection and if they don't move everything, then you'll help. You'll take some of that back and exchange it for, you know, summer or fall collection? Yeah, that's that's what I mean. That or we help them out uh, with the uh, discounts uh, for the sale season. Uh, for sure, one of the things that we're trying to be to to help them with is the transparency in all our uh, activations. So uh, we are trying to have a very good communications uh, with them about. Uh, all the launches of the new collections. So when one collection is coming out, when the season of the sales season is starting, with what type of discount, uh, and so on. So that helps uh, to be all on the same page 
and uh, uh, not to be crushed because you didn't consider that you had less time to have a full-time sale. Yeah. It, is much of your competition doing that? I feel like that's a real strategic advantage for you if, if a shop is considering your brand versus a competitive brand that, you know, if they realize that you guys are going to help them all those ways. Is that is that typical or is that something pretty unique to Santini? The, some things are uh, typical. So the stock rotation, uh, more than one brand is trying to do it. Uh, uh, the, I would say that... Uh, the communication that we are trying to keep with our uh, distribution and uh, and shops uh, is quite unique. We are very very transparent with them. Um, we have a, a monthly uh, newsletter that goes out to all our customers, uh, shop customers, uh, saying, uh, "Okay, in the next three months, uh, these are the products uh, that we will be focusing on in terms of communication to the media." Uh, to the social, uh, in, and then we'll, in two months' time, we will start the, 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 the sales. Uh, in three months' time, we will have this event, uh, this competition, etc., etc. So we try to keep them updated with all the things that we do. Nice. And, and so now I'm curious, where do most of your sales come from? Is it like what percentage is coming through those independent bike shops versus either online or something else? Well, uh, uh, you need to add another uh, variable there because we sell through online, we sell through independent shops, and we sell to teams because we also are very active with custom clothing. So um, I would say that uh, at the moment, uh, the online is worth at least 30% of everything that we we sell. Uh, Then we have another 30% uh, with uh, direct to teams and clubs, etc., and then uh, the rest is independent bike shops. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. The cycling industry, like many many other industries, is predominantly led by men still, and at least in the U.S., there are plenty of women I know who feel like they just can't advance as far as the men inside of a company. Do you think you face any challenges, particular to being a female leader of a company? To be honest with you, no. <laughs> Sometimes it's even an advantage because, of course, as you say, when you are in a room full of men and you are the only woman, everybody will remember you because, True. <laughs> of course, you were the only different in that room. To be honest, well, surely you can't be too uh, too womanly, uh, as you can say, in so above all in this sport. Uh, so uh, you have to be open into you know being uh, very sporty in many ways, uh, also in the discussions. Uh, but that's the way I am, so it wasn't really difficult for me. So I've always been uh, very. I always felt perfectly right in the company of men. Uh, because uh, I think that they are very straightforward, more than women. So for me, it wasn't really such a big, difficult uh, thing to to face. Uh, so I don't know. I wouldn't say that that was a difficulty. Uh, probably the only place uh, that really got me uh, in as a difficult spot in the in in all my career was uh, uh, Japan. 
in Japan, I actually felt that being a woman can be uh, difficult in business because they're not used to deal with, uh, uh, with women at the same level. In the rest of the world, uh, it was okay. Hmm. And I'm curious, you know, this is Santino is a family company. It was started by your father. So looking from the outside, you can say, okay, well, you know, this was a natural progression for you to get to that point if you had wanted to stay in the family business, which you did. For maybe people who work for you or work for another company where there's either a female lead or a male lead, is it, I don't know, this is kind of a big question, but like, where do you see some of the challenges in bringing more women up into the higher ranks or even leading companies? And what do you guys do in particular to foster that? Well, to be honest, this is a, a very female company, not only because of me uh, being being the owner and, and, and the managing director, but also because 90% of our employees are women. Wow. And they are in every single role, not only in, uh, in the factory, uh, everywhere. Uh, actually, it's probably more difficult to be a man around here. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, and 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 it's always been that way. I don't know if that's an imprinting that my dad actually gave to the company. He was always uh, uh, he always said that women can be uh, more precise and uh, reliable and faster in many cases. So he started hiring women, and uh, we kept it that way. So for us as a company. Uh, there's no difficulty whatsoever. The fact that uh, the the ownership is done is a, a, a is basically me and my sister, uh, and we understand the need of uh, of our girls living and working for us. Uh, so here we we try to. Uh, understand when they need extra time at home because they have uh, small kids. Uh, we try to to help them uh, uh, maybe wor- having the possibility to work at ho- from home uh, or having some uh, uh, elastic time to come in and out. So w- we both are moms, me and my sister. We know that sometimes uh, there are unpredictable <laughs> things happening with the kids. Uh, and so we try to really be very flexible with the, with the girls working for us. Um, for the other companies, it's honestly a difficult thing to say because, uh, you know, uh, I've been living and working in this environment. And for me, this is so natural that uh, I don't know, I will probably be uh, very pushy. And uh, 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 even if I worked in a different company. Uh, my, my dad always said that I've been very bossy from the moment that I was born. So if I weren't doing what I'm doing here, I would probably do it somewhere else. Yeah. Some of that I think is a cultural thing too, but you know, like I see my wife and my daughter and they're both very strong personalities. I wonder if the, the freedom to express that in, you know, either a work environment or a social environment is... And how free somebody feels to do that is more of a cultural thing because I know a lot of European women who I work with either through the bike industry or that just that I've met, you know, they they seem to be more um, aggressive is not the right word, but like like you said, right, like not afraid to speak their mind if they don't like something or they think it should be done different. Boom, you know, and I feel like that's where um, 
there could be some issues sometimes when they're they're not able to or don't feel comfortable being able to just say what they really think and that's that's a shame because i feel like that's how everybody grows right like when you when you can't present your ideas because you're afraid of what the reaction might be everybody misses out i agree absolutely i would be very very disappointed if uh, in a meeting uh, my staff uh, wouldn't speak up if I say something wrong because uh, I, that's the reason why I pay these people. It, I mean, it's to challenge me and to say, uh, Monica, this is wrong. I don't agree with that. Have you thought about this opportunity? So if you want to be uh, only surrounded by yes persons, uh, I don't know. That's not the way I like. Yeah, I don't think it's the way to grow either. Um, the other thing I like that you said, you know, you said because you and your sister are both moms, you understand the needs. I think that's another important thing for any manager, you know, regardless of gender or situation is like you may not have that same life experience, but you have to look at your employees and be able to try and kind of figure out what their needs are and empathize with their situation a little bit. Because, you know, if they may be a great employee, but if they're they're unable to enjoy life because of the limitations placed on them by work or whatever, it's, you're going to lose that good employee. So it's, it's important, you know, like you said, look at it from what their needs are, not necessarily what your needs are. No, I, and definitely if you want to have good employees and to be very good working for you, um, I think that they need to feel good. They need to be, uh, able to, uh, to know that coming to work is such a good thing and not, oh, my God, it's Monday again. Because <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's the, you can get the best out of people that way. And uh, uh, when they know that, so in case of need, uh, our doors are always open. They can come in and express themselves and say, hey, I need this time off because of this reason. So, uh, I mean, li- I think that uh, the working life is, must be very important in everybody's life. But it's not only that. And so uh, you need to come to terms to that. Yeah. So your father started the company. How long did he run it before you took over? Uh, So he started in 1965. And uh, I came back from Brazil in in 2000. So uh, the first years, of course, uh, they weren't all, uh, you know, drinking water here with him. Uh, But I would say that after five or six years, uh, I was already starting to to manage the company. Uh, uh, And then in 2010, I think it was, 2011, he actually... Uh, also passed all the shares of the company to Paul and I. Wow, nice. What was that transition process like? Did you work there when you were young or did you just wait until after uh, school and everything? Well, you know, this is a family company. So uh, for me, family and company are the same thing. So uh, working here, I was living here actually. <laughs> So after school, I normally I normally came to the company during the summer vacations. Uh, I was working in the factory. Um, you know, my my parents didn't know what to do with me, where to put me during the the vacation time. So they actually put me in the factory, and then I was doing you know small small things there. And then also during my university years, I also worked here part time. Um, that's, that's the reason why I, I decided to, uh, 
after after I my master degree, I decided to move uh, to a different country and to have a, a different experience because I knew that otherwise I would be completely sucked in by the company. Uh, so yeah, the the the, the fact that uh, yeah I saw so many sides of this company because I grew into it that it was part of my of my daily life. Uh, we we normally say that uh, we we eat bread and bicycles at my family table. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's been. Uh, it's not been easy uh, to decide to come back and to and to decide to have a, a really strong role in the company. Um, but at a certain point, uh, my dad actually uh, asked for help, and then I think that that was uh, the biggest, uh, the, the the most uh, uh, exciting thing that a, a son or a daughter can uh, can experience, uh, having a parent saying. Uh, I need help. Uh, can you come over? And so that's the reason why I came back. And uh, since then, I've been fighting uh, to first uh, to have uh, my own role inside the company, and then uh, to to keep it growing and to be more a more international uh, company. Yeah, was that hard getting the rest of the employees to? start accepting you as the boss when they were, had been used to your dad for 40 something years? Uh, I don't think so because I, when I came here, I wasn't the boss at all. I was, uh, one of them. So I really, really worked on every single thing, uh, to understand it. And then I started to fight, um, with my dad to make the changes that I saw that were necessary and uh, and then all the other employees also saw as necessary. So in a certain way, they saw me as an, an ally at the beginning. And so when I, uh, and of course I had a, a more uh, direct channel with my dad. And so I could also say to him things that, uh, they didn't feel like comfortable saying, so I'd been used uh, um, to to make these these changes happening. So it was really a process, uh, and I don't think that uh, in the end, uh, I, I let's say that I earned uh, the respect from uh, from all the people working here, uh, and I hope that that's the case still today. Yeah, your younger sister Paula is the head of marketing. What's it like working with a sibling? Um, well, first of all, I have to say that we, we, uh, we have many years of difference between the two of us. It's, we are 11 years apart, so we don't really have that kind of, uh, fighting. We're not fighting siblings because I was always, uh, much bigger than, much older than her. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, not, uh, something that came easily to to us. I mean, I was uh, I was more like a second mom to her than uh, really a, a sister. Um, and honestly, we actually cut out uh, uh, very different roles uh, for for us. Uh, also, Paola actually had an experience uh, abroad for many years. 
And then uh, when, she, when I called her and asked her to come back and to work with us, uh, she had already a very good experience in, in that field. So uh, it was easy for me to, uh, to give her uh, that kind of responsibility because she actually was up to the task. Um, and then we actually get along pretty well. Uh, just to tell you something, we share the same office. So uh, we, ha- we, ha- we are in a very big office and our two tables are one close to the other because uh, we don't really uh, fight. Or if we fight, we always do uh, because we have different opinions, but we always have in mind that what we want is the good of this company. So uh, we don't fight because of uh, personal interest. We really fight because we, we think, think we see things differently, but with the same goal. Very nice. All right, I've got three standard questions I like to ask everyone at the end of the interview. The first is, what operational or management challenges keep you up at night? Mm, the fact that uh, you have many people depending on you uh, and uh, you want to, to be able to, to choose right in terms of, uh, you know, all the strategies, uh, marketing, but also uh, the different investments and uh, the markets you want to open, etc., because if you fail, you're not just failing yourself, but you are letting down a lot of people. I think that's uh, the biggest challenge for me all the time, uh, no matter what it is. Uh, and then definitely, well, in, in general terms, is uh, to think that the direction that you take in the company is the right one. So uh, as I was explaining at the beginning, uh, well, we decided not to move production in, uh, uh, in a different country. Of course, that was a very big uh, decision uh, that could have gained, uh, gained us a lot of mar- points of marginality, of course, because we could lower the costs. But that decision was also based on the fact that uh, uh, not only we want to have a very quality, quality products, but also we feel uh, very much the responsibility for the people working for us. Yeah, that's some very top level, big picture stuff, which makes my follow up question to that tricky. I'm just going to ask and we'll see what comes with it. Is, is there a product or service you wish existed that could help solve those problems? And, and I say that because some people are they're like, oh, you know, like, I just can't get my head around this the finance or our shopping cart is always breaking or something like that. But <laughs> it's not really your problems there. So, and I, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a product service. That's just, you just gotta go with your gut. I think sometimes on those. Oh uh, yeah. Those are not uh, really problems that keep me up at night. Like the small <laughs> daily thing. Uh, I think that, well, as an Italian, uh, I think that we really are a problem solver. Uh, in our nature, so it, more than uh, keeping me up at night is is more fun to <laughs> to actually find solutions there. Uh, it's uh, and on the contrary, when somebody comes to me with these kind of problems, it's like, I'm like, okay, have you thought about? Uh, and, and then we start the conversation. Uh, so no, it's more the the the, the solitude of uh, taking certain decisions, a very big decision, 
uh, even if I mean you share it with uh, with my sister, but also still with my dad, the big ones. Uh, you know, you never know if you are actually doing the right thing. And um, this is a, a complicated world, uh, and uh, uh, and it's so much easier and faster uh, to to collapse if you fail. Um, and, and so that that's really the biggest challenge for me to to decide right for for everybody. Yeah. I, you know, I thought of this while you were talking because I just remembered that there's so many parts of Europe who take a, and this is a total tangent, by the way, uh, so many parts of Europe who take, you know, a month long vacation in the middle of either summer or, you know, a typically busy time. Is, is, does Italy do that? Italy still does that a lot. We don't. <laughs> okay. Well, because I was going to ask, like, how do you... Just let you basically there's so many companies that just shut down for a month. Like, how do you maintain any sort of momentum when you do that? No, so we we actually do have uh, um, a long vacation time, uh, but for the production factory. Uh, so the workers in in the factory actually uh, go on vacation, but not for a whole month. Unfortunately, only for a couple of weeks. Uh, but we need to do that because it's difficult to. Uh, keep uh, the production uh, uh, running uh, on uh, on shifts when you don't have full personnel in the factory. So it's easier to just shut down for two weeks. While uh, the rest of the company, so marketing, sales, uh, designs, and so on, uh, they just take turns. Uh, and so we never close. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess with production, you could schedule you know enough production so you have inventory ahead exactly. of time to do forecasting. Exactly. While uh, when you do have to to ship out uh, the you know the carts uh, from the web shop, you just can say, "Oh, sorry, for a whole yeah. month, <laughs> we cannot deliver." <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go over very well. Uh, so my last question is: What advice would you give to an entrepreneur looking to start something similar to what you're doing, or in your case? to take over a family business? Ooh, taking over a family business. A lot of patience. <laughs> a lot of patience. Uh, also, um, I think that it's really crucial to put yourself in the other person's shoes. So your dad or your mom, uh, if they, are, they were the founder or the, the, the people running the company before you, I think that is so much easier to say, oh, I do this better because I'm younger and faster. Uh, but you have always to think that for them, uh, the company is not only a company, is uh, their life. It's part of, uh, it's like a new baby. And, uh, and imagine to take away a baby from a parent. Uh, it, it takes a lot of patience to, to tell them that you don't want to steal it from them. You just want to care the same way that they did and to help it grow and uh, in a different way maybe because you are different, you have a different um, style. But I think it's important to to let them understand that you are, are capable of doing that and you will put exactly the same care as they did. Uh, and, you know, just uh, let them grow their decision to let you let you do it. So don't really push them too much uh, in a way or the other. For me, it was uh, really important to show my dad 
that I could do things properly and it was easier um, because I, I picked fields uh, that for him they were not uh, uh, they were not uh, you know things that he was used to do so I started for instance putting in uh, new computer systems uh, new ERPs uh, and for him that was absolutely uh, something that he didn't care about uh, he didn't understand so but that gave him the idea that I was able to do things uh, and then uh, when I promised something then I delivered so maybe try to find different fields that not used or or managed by the parent and then start from there that is fantastic advice and thank you i appreciate your time this is a great conversation thank you it was really a pleasure to have this conversation with you Real quick, I want to let you know that I take a lot of notes on every episode and turn them into a blog post that expands on the key points. If you've never checked out the show notes, I'd encourage you to click on one for your favorite episode. I think you'll enjoy it, and they're a great reference piece to complement each episode. You'll find a link for every show's notes at thebuildcycle.com slash podcast. Now, back to this show. The sponsorship activation is a topic I'll explore in greater detail in a future show, so I want to focus on the leadership tips. Here's what stood out to me. Monica says, because their company is led by women, they understand the needs of their largely female workforce. But you don't have to be a woman to understand what women need. Just ask them. Pay attention to the response, then respect it. And respect that others' needs are different than yours. The same is true for women leading men, men leading women, or any situation, whether the differences amount to race, socioeconomic status, education, whatever. Everyone's different. What works for me is to simply set the expectations for performance, then let people loose to do their job. Judge based on their achievements, not whether they're doing things exactly how you would, or when and where you would. At the end of the day, it's the results that matter, and if you can create an accommodating work environment, you're more likely to attract and retain top talent. Here's hoping you're leading with respect and hitting that subscribe and like button on your podcast player because, (laughs) respect. Thanks, and until next time, keep building. Keep building.